coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Ooh, is it a hot one? Like, the rest of the week, this is supposed to be the hottest week of the year, or thus far anyway, uh, in what has been maybe the hottest week of most of our lives and unfortunately, maybe the coolest summer we'll have for quite some time. I don't know. I don't want to be draconian about it. I don't want to be pessimistic, but there's a lot of headlines swirling from climatologists who talk about the impacts of things like the Atlantic Ocean current going away. Yeah, just frightening stuff, right? <laughs> Welcome to The Ron Show. Let me brighten your day as you head on home uh, listening on the America One radio app or wherever you podcast. So let's do start actually with some good news. Let's get this from CNBC. Some breaking news. UPS and the Teamsters announcing they've reached a tentative agreement. This impacts 340,000 UPS union workers in the International Brotherhood of Teamsters nationwide. So just look at the Teamsters release right now. They say UPS has put $30 billion of new money on the table throughout the length of this contract. We have reached out to UPS. No response so far. Here's a few of the highlights from the release. Uh, existing full and part-time UPS Teamsters will get $2.75, uh, 75 cents more per hour this year and up to uh, excuse me, $7.50 more per hour over the length of the contract. One of the big issues of contention was the pay for part-time workers. Part-time workers will be bumped up to $21 per hour immediately. Uh, more wage increases throughout the length of this contract that will impact both full-time and part-time workers. Uh, the release also highlights that UPS delivery drivers will be among some of the highest paid in the nation. Looking at shares of UPS right now, up more than 1.5% following this news again. UPS and the Teamsters reaching a tentative contract. This impacts 340,000 union workers that work for UPS. Shares of UPS up over 1% right now. We've continued to talk about the impact that this could have had, potentially a $7 billion negative impact on the economy. Mm -hmm. If there were a strike, that strike appears to have now been averted. The contract now with a tentative agreement. Uh, the deadline was July 31st, something we continue to watch. But again, shares of UPS rising higher, now 2% higher after this tentative agreement that where UPS and the union, the Teamsters have agreed to broad wage increases across the board. And that is good news for the economy, for, of course, UPS employees. And, you know, here's the thing to know about you. First of all, UPS based in Atlanta. So this is Atlanta news. Um, the thing to, to, to remember is as we're sweating our brains out, I went to Douglasville today to show some houses and came back. And I could not imagine being stuck in traffic, coming back on I-20, a couple accidents on the way back, and not having air conditioning. Can you imagine that? In a big tin can brown truck wearing your brown shorts and the boots and no air conditioning. Those drivers, man, God bless them. Seriously, bless them for what they do. Not just the driving, the driving in the heat. Those trucks don't look like a whole lot of fun to maneuver either. Uh, no air conditioning. And then hauling goods out of the truck using a dolly, we hope, or wearing the back brace, and then rolling it to an address. And look, I live in a condo building. That's no easy task, right? And then having to unload off the dolly onto a porch, yada, yada, yada. It's not an easy job. And I also need to point out that this doesn't happen without the union. And sure, there are going to be those who are going to say, well, that doesn't 
matter if you're a good employee or a bad employee, now you're all going to get the same. But it's not like they just gave raises for folks who are just starting out and nobody else got a raise. No, these are like across the board. This is a good deal. And if UPS couldn't afford to do it, well, they obviously wouldn't have done it. Again, organized labor, man. Which, by the way, is growing in popularity, if not in actual raw numbers of union members. You're hearing me right. More Americans have a favorable view or opinion of unionization, even though union numbers in this country are at near historic lows. That's pretty telling, if you ask me. More than 70% of the country actually approve of labor unions, even though there isn't that much of a union boom. I mean, there's been a push. We always get the headlines when Starbucks is battling unionizing or Amazon is battling unionizing or Tesla or whoever is battling the latest opportunity for folks to collectively bargain. The Bureau of Labor Statistics recently released uh, some union data for the year 2022, and the data shows that it's not exactly a resurgence in unionizing. The share of American workers in a union has continued to drop. Last year, the union membership rate fell by about two-tenths of a percent to 10.1%. That is the lowest number on record, despite the fact that Americans' opinion of unionizing is as high as it's been since the 1960s. So if unions are so popular and we see the results of collective bargaining, well, why aren't more Americans a part of unions? So I'm reading this NPR article from uh, February of early this year where they asked Suresh Naidu, an economist at Columbia University, who said, American labor law just puts an enormous barrier in the way of workers joining a union. So you need to convince 50% plus one of your coworkers to join a union if you want a union. The article states that alone can entail a difficult and time-intensive campaign process. Meanwhile, uh, according to uh, Suresh Naidu, our labor laws make it relatively easy for employers to short-circuit organizing efforts. And even when some of their tactics are technically illegal, companies are given wide latitude to thwart unionizing with minimal legal sanctions. Union organizers are forced to strategize and organize outside their workplace and figure out how to convince coworkers to join the fight without getting penalized or fired. Naidu said, workers basically have to be like a little Navy SEAL team in order to successfully unionize under the radar of an employee. Now, like most of you, I've worked in a office environment on many occasions. You can't get half of your coworkers in most offices to agree where you're going to go have lunch. Could you try and fill a pizza order where you all could decide 50% plus one on a pizza with a selection of toppings that at least half of the office would be happy with? I mean, a lot of folks would be, oh, you know, we'll just do pepperoni and cheese. Then you got those at or vegetarian or vegan? Ooh, vegetarian? Okay. Cheese pizza. Ooh, vegan? Ooh. What about uh, the combination pizza? A little bit of everything for everybody. Well, I don't like mushrooms. I don't like... It's really hard to get all of your coworkers on the same page. It's really hard to convince yourself and all of your coworkers to collectively bargain against the boss when there is that leverage that the boss has of just letting somebody go. I mean, the whole purpose of joining a union 
is so that you can't be fired for frivolous reasons. Or let's also remember, as uh, Professor Naidu said, there are a lot of legal barriers. And, and I'm curious why it didn't even come up that so many states in the United States are what they erroneously call right-to-work states. That doesn't mean you have the right to work. It means you have the right to work on your employer's conditions. Right now, I'm sitting here marveling at the fact that we're in the midst of a Hollywood meltdown. First the writer's strike, and then the actor's strike. All happening now at the same time in a bit of an overlap. And Hollywood is essentially shut down. Now, some of the independent filmmakers are kind of doing their thing because they get to fly under the radar for certain rules and conditions, et cetera, and so on. But by and large, it's it's kind of breathtaking to watch as the writers and the actors are sort of banding together and saying, yeah, look, uh, we've got some conditions that need to be met. We see some things coming up on the horizon. Aside from current conditions that we want to address, some inequities that we see are patently obvious but they're looking ahead at like artificial intelligence for uh, example a lot of folks who show up to audition for roles are signing these tediously long fine print documents that somewhere in the document says by the way we can use your likeness if we hire you for one role we may take some of your likeness your image your voice even and use it for something else. Hell no. Not without residuals, right? I, I say I marvel at this all happening because, well, remember, I'm a former radio employee. I was in radio broadcasting for 28 years. It wouldn't shock me. And by the way, it's been five plus years since I was even on the air in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. It wouldn't shock me if there are still elements that I produced for the station I used to work on, on the air uh, completely, or any of the other four stations that I oversaw, it wouldn't shock me if there are commercials airing that I voiced for businesses that I didn't get paid for by the business because it was just part of my job to voice commercials. Wouldn't shock me at all if some of that work is still airing or some of the pieces of voice work I did. It's still being used. Wouldn't shock me. It just wouldn't shock me. <laughs> and radio employees, by and large, don't have the sort of collective bargaining power that film actors and actresses do, or writers. And what's happened to the radio industry? It's a shell of its former self. I mean, right here in Atlanta, we have a major pop station airing a morning show that I believe is based out of Seattle or Portland or one of them or both. So when you tune into that station, you hear the prior day's morning show in Atlanta, a top 10 radio media market in this country. Because the parent company of that radio station doesn't invest in people here in Atlanta. And if radio broadcasters the on-air personalities had had some sort of collective bargaining power, they might have not just protected their employees from losing their jobs, but likely could have protected the industry from losing 
what made it so special in the first place. Could have saved the radio industry from falling into the calamity that it's in now, where by and large in most markets you have one or two or three nationally faceless corporate entity-owned clusters of radio stations. Like you can't walk into a building anymore and shake the owner of the radio station's hand. You'd be like if you can walk into a radio station building anymore. They may not even have a receptionist. You might not even meet your favorite DJ because your favorite DJ is not actually in that city. They're piped in from somewhere else. Or we're on the other day before and you're hearing yesterday's schlock. Collective bargaining, unionizing, it's not just good for the employee. It's great for the consumer. And and oftentimes, it's actually good for the industry too. Go figure. More Ron Show after this on America One Radio or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show. We are hoping, keeping our fingers crossed, we get to talk with Morrow City Council person Van Tran, who was like attacked, verbally attacked by another Morrow City Council person, all because Councilman Tran wants to make sure that there are ballots for city elections in the city of Morrow that are translated into Spanish and Vietnamese. There's a sizable Spanish and Vietnamese presence in the city of Morrow. Anyway, we played the audio yesterday of uh, a fellow city council person just taking Councilman Tran to task, calling her un-American for wanting this. So uh, we have a back and forth a little bit with uh, Councilman Tran, and she, I believe, is speaking with CBS 46 and hope to have her on in just a little bit. Another local story that is just absolutely wild. Listen to this from CNN. 83-year-old David Zandra now in police custody. The former Delaware County pastor charged in Georgia with a 1975 kidnapping and murder of 8-year-old Gretchen Harrington. This man is evil. He killed this poor 8-year-old girl he knew and who trusted him. And then he acted as if he was their family friend. Gretchen's father was a pastor here at Brumall Reformed Presbyterian Church near where she was last seen on August 15th. She was on her way to vacation Bible camp at Trinity Chapel where Zanstra was pastor. Two months later, her body was discovered in Ridley State Park. Last week, Zanstra confessed to the chilling crime. He got her in the car, drove her to a secure location, asked her to take off her clothes. She refused. He then beat her to death with his hands. The catalyst to the confession, another alleged victim of Zanstra's recently spoke up. State police immediately traveled to Georgia to confront the suspect. He was relieved, I would say. He, it was like a weight was lifted off his shoulders. He's a friendly guy. I've been, I talked to him even a few times, say, hey, I see him walking around with his cane. Today, his neighbors in Georgia reacted. It's shocking. I had no idea. I they, wouldn't. They've just always been very nice people. Crazy story, right? You hear the reactions of his neighbors from the subdivision he lived in, that being the Lakewood Colony subdivision. Just shocked to find out that this 83-year-old former minister, some would call an exemplary neighbor, now accused of killing an 8-year-old girl more than, I'm sorry, nearly half a century ago. No word on if the former reverend David Zanstra had ever 
dressed in drag or was trans, but definitely was a former minister. All right, let's move on. I don't want to make more of this than there actually is. Um, The Battery, Atlanta, now has something of a pseudo-mass transit option, kind of. We're talking about these uh, free self-driving buses. (laughs) It's a pilot program for what is called the Cumberland Hopper. It's a self-driving vehicle, and it looks like it can hold, I don't know, I'd say uh, maybe eight to ten folks. You know what? Let me read the article. Uh, Taylor Croft reporting this in the AJC. It'll uh, give folks the option. Oh, man, this sucks. When you park at the Cobb Galleria in one of the parking decks, the satellite decks to go to the battery to watch a ball game. I mean, it's 100 degrees today. Who wants to do all that walking to get to a ball game and then sit there and simmer in your own juices for two and a half hours before walking back? It's a chore. I love the battery. I love my Braves. Uh, Truist Park is a great ballpark uh, to, to watch the games. It's been invigorating the last five or six seasons to watch the Braves out there. But that walk. And there are those that even park across not just 275, or I'm sorry, 285, but also uh, Cumberland Boulevard parks at the Cumberland Mall, which, by the way, you're not supposed to. They're supposed to tow you, but I don't know if they actually do that. Anyway, there are folks that do a lot of walking to get to the Braves game. And for all uh, for all the fanfare that there is about you know going to the battery and uh, exploding your wallet open to spend even more money with the kids before the game, and then a ton of money at the game, and then... Yeah, it's it's a chore because there's no mass transit to the battery. There is a patchwork of buses and Uber drop zones and the parking decks, tons of parking decks, of course. But getting to the game is a bit of a chore. Well, these uh, these self-driving buses are supposed to help that, I guess. And it's something. It's a bit of a Band-Aid over a gaping wound, but still, it's something. So these... Uh, uh, self-driving uh, Cumberland hoppers uh, have been signed on for by the Cumberland Community Improvement District officials. Uh, they unveiled the hopper, an autonomous vehicle. They are piloting for the next eight months in partnership with a company called Beep. It's an autonomous transport company. So, uh, and I'll share the uh, notes, uh, the, the the link to today, uh, the link to the article in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Uh, you've got uh, two little options here. You've got one little route that'll take you around the Cobb Galleria to the uh, Renaissance Hotel and some of the uh, Cumberland office buildings and the uh, Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. That's kind of cool. If you're parking at one of those satellite decks and you're going to a, a show at the uh, Cumberland Energy, uh, the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. But then there's also the one that'll just kind of go in a big loop over the pedestrian bridge that takes you to and from uh, the ballpark, the battery and the parking decks at the Cobb Galleria Center over that pedestrian bridge that goes over 285. I mean, it's something. It's something. It it, it definitely it definitely helps, but it's not it's not a link from Marta to the battery. And that could be 30 years down the road anyway. But and by then, you know how these venues go. The Braves will want a new stadium and will move where their season ticket bases moved to in like I don't know Forsyth County. <laughs> I'm joking, but am I? Also, uh, this was kind of neat. The uh, Atlanta Beltline got a $25 million grant. That is the largest in their history, a federal grant, with Senator John Ossoff and the Kama Williams there and the big cardboard check. I don't see Governor Brian Kemp trying to shoehorn his ass in there to take some credit for that, but 
good on them. This is going to close the northeast corridor or the of the Beltline, and also, oh, speaking of mass transit, take it to the Marta station, connecting it to the Marta station at Lindbergh. Huzzah! Now remember, the Beltline is supposed to also, sorry, Eric Erickson, supposed to have the streetcar. So, uh oh, here we go, here we go, y'all. When that streetcar eventually gets extended to Pond City Market and then makes its way past Piedmont Park and up to Lindbergh, <gasps> the streetcar connects to Marta. Oh my gosh. We're starting to have a little bit of major city mass transit in Atlanta. Shudder to think. I mean, that's probably two, three decades down the road too, but still, we're there. World Cup's coming here in 2026. We won't be ready for that, but maybe by the, I don't know, 2050 whatever. Olympics that we're going to go for, I'm sure. We'll have that major city mass transit that we so desperately need. All right. More on show after this on America One Radio or wherever you podcast. Thank you for listening. Archived audio, blogs, social media links, and more all in one place. Log on at ronshowatl.com. The Ron Show on America One Radio. You got to love the way healthcare in this country does or doesn't function. Like in on the break here, I, I got a call from my primary doctor's office. Oh my god, we got these results back from that thing the uh, the doctor did back there, and you need to go call this specialist and make an appointment. Okay, I first said, "Well, wait a minute. Are you going to send me this information like via email or on the, uh, the the little app they use to send this information, so that I don't have to like look up the name of this like." doctor's office you just mentioned that I don't know how to spell. Is it Edmund with a U or with an O? Blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, okay, we'll update the app so you can, you know, see the notes and then reach out to them. Never mind that the app is like confusing as heck. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not some geriatric who, you know, needs the consumer cellular phone. Although if they want to sponsor us, um, like I know what I'm doing. I'm pretty tech savvy. But that app is cumbersome. So I, I finally find the doctor's information. And so I'm like, okay, let me just call this this specialist. And they're like, uh, so we need your primary physician's office to fax us the ref- fax? In 2023, you need them to fax you something? Fax the referral before they will then reach out to me to schedule this important employ- appointment. The ones at my primary physician's office are like, oh my gosh, we got to deal with this. Let's 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 get this done. Let's go. come on, chop chop chop. So I, I, you know, I'm I'm acting with urgency here, and the folks over across town at Doctor Quinn office waiting on the Pony Express to show up with the scribe, the fax. Anyway, so I call back to my primary physician's office, and the lady answering the phone. Well, who told you that? I'm like, I uh, the lady that called me. Who, who do you see? I'm like, oh, so-and-so. Okay, well, let me transfer you back to, to that section. Immediately, I get a voicemail greeting. Hi, you've reached the desk. Of, we, we, we can't take your call right now. Really? <laughs> I'm not even like sitting here panicking about whatever it is that I'm supposed to be worried about. I'm more like, so are we going to do this? Are we going to get this dealt with? This, this seems really urgent when you called me in the middle of the day to interrupt me in the middle of work to tell me that I needed to get this done with some urgency. And so I'm being urgent. Nonetheless, I apologize. Uh, 
We are supposed to have been talking with Morrow City Council person Van Tran. And I'm guessing we're getting lost in the communication there. So, uh, unfortunately, I may not may not have Van on uh, today's show, and I apologize for that. Uh, that's why I don't like to pre-promote too much if I don't already have it banked. But, um, so, the, the, the audio I shared from you yesterday was Van getting dressed down by another city council person, a Morrow city council person, who called Van un-American for having the audacity to want ballot information also in Spanish and Vietnamese. Dorothy Dean just ripped her a new one at a recent Morrow City Council meeting. Van, by the way, is a Vietnamese-American. And, and Dorothy Dean said that, that Van failed as a citizen of this country, dishonored her office because she sought a petition for multilingual ballots ahead of an upcoming election. I'm thinking maybe Ms. Dean feels like her seat's endangered if the Spanish and Vietnamese American voters can actually make out the ballot. What's what's wrong with that? Yeah, Dorothy was like, I'd like you to know that I feel as a citizen of this city and as a fellow council member that you do not deserve to sit on that dais as an elected official. Wow. This petition offended her highly. You have failed in your oath of office. You have failed as a citizen of this country. You disregarded and you dishonored the oaths that you took as an American citizen. I would like to say that is un-American and inexcusable. Shame on you, Van Tran. Wow. Anyway, we do hope to have Van on at some point in time. I just want to let you know that we've made the effort, and uh, we did speak a little bit this morning back and forth on uh, Facebook Messenger. And you know how Facebook Messenger, I, I, I get the feeling like after a few messages, you don't start getting the notifications after a while. So that might be where we are. And so we'll make some uh, some other efforts to reach out to Van to have Van on, because I, I'd like to hear this conversation. Uh, I, it's, to me, it's a larger conversation that needs to be had because I I imagine Dorothy Dean is a Democrat. Morrow is a majority-minority city. Uh, Dorothy is herself an African-American female. Black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party. I have to imagine that Miss Dean... I mean, I could be wrong. Misha Maynard was once a Democrat, now she's not. But I, I, I can't help but notice there, there, there does seem to be division within the ranks. A little bit of a... Uh, tribalism in some cases where efforts by one part within the left of center is seeking some advancements and there's uh, a little bit of a, well, wait a minute, now you're infringing on my area, yada, yada, yada. In fact, we see this, this, this rift happening within the Asian American community and the African American community over affirmative action. We just saw that recently. There has been a movement to try and separate what I've noticed the LGBs from the TQIA plus. And that ain't really happening. I'm just, I'm telling you that right. I mean, th- there are anecdotes. There are a few folks. I mean, there are log cabin Republicans too. So, I mean, go figure, but by and large, the LGBTQIA plus community is a community rather unified um, in support of the trans community. And I, I'll be the first to admit, I don't, I don't get the whole pronouns thing. I feel some of that's a little showy. I go to a lot of uh, local LGBTQIA plus events where somebody will stand up and behind a dais and uh, announce who they are. My pronouns are, my pronouns are, okay. I mean, that's cool, I guess. I, and I understand wanting to foster 
uh, an inclusive environment where those who feel like they need to not announce that their pronouns are he, him, or she, her, they, them. Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, it, it, I'm 49 years old. Some things take a little longer from, for that to sink in. But by and large, I still support the trans community, the non-binary, easy for me to say, non-binary community. But mark my words, those of us left of center, there are efforts to divide us. And, and it's, it's understandable from the right. I get it. They are trying as best they can to find ways to wedge us apart because the economy's doing well. Yeah, they don't have that as the rallying cry anymore. Inflation has subsided. I mean, we're not deflating, but we have stopped at the inflating part. And hopefully allowing uh, take-home pay to catch up. So with the economy doing well and out of the pandemic, no longer, knock wood, in any major wars, they have to do something. They have to do something. The, the, the social wedge issues are their red meat, and that's the direction they're going to go. And by trying to divide what should be a pretty unified flank left of center going into the 2024 cycle, where the rights of the trans community, the rights of uh, minority voters, the rights of women and bodily autonomy are going to, and by the way, poll after poll after poll shows that there is a vast majority of American voters who see the same way those of us left of center see. So they're going to seek to divide and conquer. Speaking of the military and the trans community, (laughs) Ron DeSantis, who, by the way, is now trailing in polls, trailing in South Carolina, Nikki Haley. I mean, she's a distant second to Donald Trump, but now Ron DeSantis is polling third behind Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. And in Iowa, trailing behind Donald Trump and Tim Scott. So there is now this movement to reboot the DeSantis campaign. Ron uh, hired away a top aide, a surrogate to Brian Kemp by the name of Cody Hall to help reboot the flailing, deflating, disappearing, discombobulating DeSantis campaign. The problem is you can't, remake, reimagine Ron DeSantis. He's the problem. He's the core issue. He wants to be as vile as Donald Trump, minus the, dare I say it, charisma or charm? Does Donald Trump have charm? I want you to listen to this exchange between Jake Tapper on CNN and Ron DeSantis, as some of Ron DeSantis's uh, military plans have been released. Talk about this 
sweeping new military policy you proposed uh, that, in your words, uh, will rip the woke out of the military. <laughs> the Pentagon response is that Army and Marines readiness is the best it's been in years, mm -hmm. uh, and reenlistment in the Army is the best it's been in years. So their argument might be in response, what problem are you trying to solve? Well, why do we have the worst recruiting uh, that we've had since the Vietnam conflict? Uh, why have great warriors being driven off, such as with the COVID-19 shot man? Mandates. These were people that had been performing admirably. A lot of them had had COVID. They had natural immunity. They were told, take this shot or leave. So I think you've had a big problem uh, with morale. You clearly have a problem with recruiting. And at this levels, everybody has acknowledged these recruiting levels are at a crisis. Why is that the case? Uh -huh. I think it's because people see the military losing its way, not focusing on the mission and focusing on a lot of these other things, which, man, we see that in other aspects of society as well. People want to join the military I think because they think it's something different. And I think some of the civilian leaders in the military are trying to have the military mimic corporate America academia. That's ultimately not going to work. So let's, let's point out, by the way, that recruitment is probably at an all-time low, I'm going to guess, because we just got out of two 20-year-long wars that were wars of choice with very little positive consequence for this country. Remember, we got into Iraq on a stack of lies and misdirection. We went into Afghanistan to take out those who factually flew planes into buildings back on 9-11-2001. And even that, when you stay there long enough, you come to realize there's just only so much you can do to prop up democracies amongst a culture of those who just aren't willing to stand up for themselves in a lot of cases. And also, dare I say, we actually made Osama bin Laden what Osama bin Laden was in order to grind down the Soviet Union in Afghanistan in the 1970s. And then we sought to hide our tracks. And by hiding our tracks, we I mean, we tried to kill him and his... Al-Qaeda brethren, so that there'd be nobody to tell on us. Well, he didn't like that, did he? I'm not condoning what he did on 9-11. I'm not condoning the attacks at all. I'm just saying, we can't... This is like, this is like the, uh, the, the border crisis uh, south, uh, south of us. There's so many things that we've done in meddling in other countries over the years, and now you can add the climate crisis to that, our, our insatiable appetite for illegal drugs, on top of that, comes back to haunt us at our southern border, and we want to take no responsibility for it. But yeah, I'm sorry, the, the, the Iraq-Afghanistan war, come on, you, you got to mention that. And by the way, which party pushed that? You got to mention that. That's got a lot to do with recruitment. Has to. Wokeness isn't even in the top five. Listen to Jake Tapper. So I hear you. Recruitment, without question, is a problem. The Army did this survey. Uh, I'll give you a copy of it if you want. They haven't released it, but I got my hands on a copy. And it looked at, it surveyed people, I think 16 to 28 barriers to service and beyond the ones such as don't want to die, don't want to be injured, don't want to be away from my family. The biggest issues 
were the number two issue, women and racial or ethnic minorities are discriminated against mm. in the Army. Wokeness is listed here, but it's only, it's only number nine. Um, so that would suggest that wokeness is not as big. Well, but I think there's an issue about, like not everyone really knows what wokeness is. I mean, I've defined it, but a lot of people who rail against wokeness can't even define it. And so I think it's a sense of, you know, this is not something that's, that's holding true to the core martial values that make the military unique. Uh, and I can tell you, the veterans, you don't have to look far and wide. Go to a VFW hall, go to an American Legion. Uh, there's huge amount of concern about the direction uh, that the military is going with. All so his point was that the number two reason people don't want to join the military is that the military is not woke enough is something to blow off. But the number nine reason people don't want to join the military or the ninth most important reason folks don't want to join the military because the military is too woke. That's the one to be concerned about. Not, not the second most uh, noted reason, but the ninth most noted reason. Wouldn't the second most like at least four times counteract the ninth most? I mean, if you want to work with recruitment issues, don't you think you should work with the priorities? Number one, number two, number three, number nine, far down the list, literally far down the list. Also, I enjoy hearing Ron DeSantis among the first Republicans to admit ain't a whole lot of people who even know what the hell woke means, but they're against it. <laughs> he says he's defined it. Okay. But he's literally that cartoon meme of the guy poking the stick in the wheel spokes of the bike that he's riding and then complaining about wokeness knocking him off the bike, though. And I say that because... Now the Florida, what is it, the Florida Teacher Pension Fund is in trouble because, well, as a lot of pension funds do now, at the behest of conservative politicians, they wanted to do this with Social Security too, remember? The pension fund, they invest. They invest in corporations. They buy stocks. They buy bonds. Futures. Blah, 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 blah. Well, they bought some, they bought some parent company of Bud Light. And that stock's not done so well in recent months. All over one custom-made six-pack given to Dylan Mulvaney. And the subsequent freak-out by folks like Ron DeSantis. He's literally the guy poking the stick in the spokes of the bike he's riding and then complaining about somebody else causing him to crash. We've seen this with his fight with Disney. Now we're seeing, and, and by the way, these are Florida taxpayers, Florida taxpayers and retired teachers, Florida taxpayers on, on the hook for expending more taxpayer dollars to now deal with the uh, tax improvement zone that Disney once handled on their own. And now retired Florida teachers on that Florida pension fund are seeing a lower than optimal yield on return when the pension fund has invested in some stock in whatever the Anheuser-Busch parent company name is now. Literally, he's that meme, the cartoon person poking the stick in the spokes of the bike that they're riding and then grousing on the ground with all the <laughs> wounds and scrapes, complaining about, wokeness, wokeness did this. Okay, Ron. All right, run a little along this segment. We've got one more here on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of the Ron Show, and y'all pray for the men of the Daily Wire. 
Ben Shapiro had a meltdown over the weekend, literally burning Barbie dolls. <laughs> because of the Barbie movie. Apparently, it's like all uh, girl power, feminist, rah, rah, rah. And Ben Shapiro, being a tiny man with a thin little voice, isn't masculine enough to handle that sort of pro-woman pressure. And then you got Michael Knowles, who decided to go off on some of the women's soccer team, the U.S. women's soccer team, for not putting their hand on their heart during the national anthem. Listen to this rant. Uh, Speaking of women's issues, the U.S. women's soccer team apparently had a game over the weekend. I'm not the biggest fan. Can't say I've ever watched even 30 seconds of a U.S. women's soccer game. Remember now, the Daily Wire has been just railing on trans athletic participation in women's sports, but Michael Knowles doesn't care to watch women's sports. During the national anthem, Mm -hmm. a significant portion of the team decided not to put their hands over their hearts, but to stand somberly, hands behind their back, disrespecting the Star-Spangled Banner. Okay, hang on. First of all, standing for the national anthem as an athlete is all you're required to do in a lot of leagues. Um, The NBA, by the way, requires that, quote, players, coaches, and trainers are to stand and line up in a dignified posture during the uh, along the sidelines on the foul line during playing of the national anthem. The uh, bylaws of the U.S. Soccer Federation, that's what the U.S. Women's National Team is a part of, require them to, quote, stand respectfully, respectfully during the playing of national anthems at any event in which the Federation is represented. So Michael Knowles already doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, but here he goes. Here you go. One girl puts her hand on her heart. Why are you talking over it? Respectful. Wow, they don't even teach the kids to do it. You're you're, you're talking over the anthem. Okay, there's another girl who has her hand on her heart. The rest of the vast majority of the team, there's another one. At least two to one, they're disrespecting the flag, not putting their hand on their heart standing stoically they're not willing to they're not willing to take the knee that got all that kind of trouble in the nfl can't please this guy okay there we go there's one guy with his hand on his heart such thin-skinned little people at the daily wire oh my god they're doing those those who are putting their hand on their heart are actually going the extra mile according to the US Soccer Federation's uh policies. Michael Knowles not knowing a damn thing he's talking about though. Ooh, he's actually talking over the national anthem while it's being played. Why aren't you just sitting there and letting the song play out instead of talking over it like a douche nozzle? Because I believe there are actual you know etiquette procedures for like not talking during the national anthem, which is exactly what he's doing while he's airing it on his daily wire video cast thing, whatever it is you want to call that he does, but he's not done. Have a listen. Why are they not doing it? Are they not doing it because they were brought up the wrong way? Like those little kids, they've got these little kids standing in front of the women's soccer team. They're, they don't have their hands on their heart. I don't blame the kids for that. The kids were just brought up the wrong way. Their parents didn't teach them how they're supposed to stand for the, the star spangled banner. Or, and hear me out, maybe there's just varying degrees of etiquette on what to do during the National Anthem. Go to a sporting event, Michael Knowles. Leave your little bubble, my friend, and look around. Not everybody puts their hand on their heart. Some veterans 
I believe it's a protocol actually to, you know, stand and salute in, in that, in that firm posture during the playing of the national anthem. So there's that. And then of course, as I mentioned before, different sports leagues have different protocols for their athletes. You're not always going to see during a baseball game all of the players with their hands on their hearts. Then again, not all players are from the United States. U.S. women's soccer team, slightly different. But he's ready to disband the U.S. women's team altogether. Because again, as much as he's concerned about trans women performing in women's sports, Michael Knowles, remember, he doesn't watch much women's sports. He doesn't, doesn't care for it. The adults should know better. And furthermore, I'm skeptical that this is just some innocent mistake. One, because their, their teammates have their hands on their hearts. So they're noticing that this is what one does. And two, because U.S. women's soccer has historically been extremely left-wing uh, and unpatriotic. There I think of that awful woman, Megan Rapinoe, is woman. the poster child of this. And because in sports broadly, there has been this, this rebellion against the Star Spangled Banner and the flag, which symbolizes the whole country. So what are we to do about this? Well, naturally, you're supposed to run to your video camera or your podcast and whine like a petty little over something you don't know the protocol for. Michael's solution was to fire the players that didn't put their hand on their hearts because we're not a totalitarian country, reminded you. And also, maybe just to disband the entire U.S. women's team because nobody watched, except for these nearly 7 million American viewers that did watch on Fox of all networks. That's it for The Ron Show. Back tomorrow at 5 to 6 p.m. on America One Radio or wherever you podcast afterwards.